Welcome back to the KPO Podcast. I'm your host, Jagisha. This week on the podcast, we have best-selling author of The Magnolia Palace, Lions of Fifth Avenue, Chelsea Girls, Fiona Davis, returning to talk about her latest, The Spectacular. This is a book about the Radio City Hall Rockettes and the Big Apple Bomber. Are you intrigued? Well, let's get started with the interview to learn more. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Thrilled to be here. Tell us about The Spectacular. What is it about? And no spoilers. Yes, of course. No spoilers at all. So The Spectacular is set at Radio City Music Hall in New York City in the 1950s. And it's from the point of view of a woman named Marion, who is really wants to be a rockette. And she goes against her father's wishes to audition. And at the same time, there's a bomber who's been setting bombs throughout New York and iconic New York City locations that's based on a real bomber. And our, our Marion gets kind of caught up in this deadly adventure where she's trying to track down this, this bomber for very personal reasons. And she teams up with a brilliant and introverted psychiatrist named Peter to try and figure out who this guy is. So, yeah, I thought this was a very interesting combination of the bomber and the Rockettes. Uh, so what inspired the story? Yeah. So, yeah, I like to say it's kind of it's romance. It's historical fiction. It's a thriller. Um, it's got a little bit of everything, this book, which was really fun to write and, and a challenge for me, which I enjoyed. And the idea actually came from an email I got to my author website. And a woman wrote and she said, I'm in my 80s. I'm a former Rockette. And if you want to know all about the secrets of Radio City Music Hall, you should call me. And I thought, well, I can't pass that up. And so I called her. Her name's Sandy. And she was just wonderful. She had so many vivid memories of her time dancing in the 50s and 60s on that stage. And um, we talked and she had all of these wonderful archival materials that she was very kind to share with me. And that just sent me down a rabbit hole of what it was like to be a Rockette in the 1950s, which is very different from what it is today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Actually, one of the little tidbits of information that was right away in the book was that it the Rockettes were originally started here in St. Louis and they were called the, the Rockets. And so I love that that was in there. And then because uh, I had not known that and I'd learned that just a, just, you know, a few months earlier when I interviewed a different author. Ah, that's so funny. Yeah, they were started by a man named Russell Marker in 1925 in St. Louis. And um, there were 16 at first. And the funny thing is the height requirement, you know, is very strict for the Rockettes. And back then it was five, two to five, six and a half. Mm-hmm. And today it's five, five to five, ten and a half. So oh. you can see how things have changed. <laughs> That's amazing. So, uh, yeah, that was one of the other little bits of information of how the Rockettes are. They have to be very uniform, no deviation, and even the dancing, they all have to like dance exactly the same way, which I can't imagine, you know, everyone's got their style. Yeah, exactly. And that's what was fun to explore in the book is you're part of this precision dance team and you can't, you know, be an inch out of whack. You know, if if the kick is supposed to be shoulder high, it can't be eye height because that ruins the illusion that it's kind of all one woman on stage. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, for some Rockettes, that's really hard to, to try and pull back your own creativity. And that's really what the theme of the book explores is, you know, what is the cost of suppressing your own individuality or your own creativity, at, you know, in, in terms of serving a greater whole, whether it's a dance troupe or a corporation or a community. 
Absolutely. And and Marion is such a different, uh, she's not your typical 1950s woman. And she wants to be independent and do things differently. She doesn't want to get married and become a housewife. So could you talk a little bit more about her? Yeah, sure. You know, back then you could either be a teacher, a nurse, or, you know, or a wife and or a secretary. And she didn't want that. She wanted to be on the stage. She's kind of bursting with life. And, you know, the idea for her really came from talking to these Rockettes who'd been in New York City in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and talked about how amazing it was to make their own money, to be dancing on this iconic stage, to be independent in the middle of New York City. One talked about her favorite memory was walking down Fifth Avenue in the middle of the night, arm in arm with her fellow dancers, just singing at the top of their lungs. And, you know, that sense of freedom was really rare for women back then, mm-hmm. which is why I think Marion is a fun character to to follow because she's she just wants to get out there and, and make her mark. Yes, definitely. And I just loved reading her. And then Peter, on the other hand, is this quiet doctor. So now is he ba- I know there was a book about the bombings. Is he based on the original uh, uh, doctor who started it? Yeah. So, so the bombings, um, what was interesting about the bombings, which, you know, they, they lasted for 16 years and this guy set 33 bombs that injured 15 people, some seriously. And he set two at radio city music hall, which is where I got the idea to link that. Mm -hmm. And he was found by using criminal profiling for the very first time. And so, yes, Peter is based on this doctor named James Brussel who was a a psychiatrist in New York at that time. And the police gave him all the letters that the bomber had sent over the years. And he analyzed them and came up with this very specific profile that he would be in his 40s and 50s. He wouldn't be married. He'd be living with an older female relative. And then he said, when you find him, he'll be wearing a double-breasted suit and it will be buttoned. And I won't give anything away, but needless to say, the, the science of criminal profiling was born. And so Peter is is inspired by James Brussel, who went on to, you know, create to, to kind of spread the word about criminal profiling all around the country. And I just like the idea of a very of two opposites attracting and having to work together to figure out for, for Marion, for its very personal reasons why she has to track down the bomber. Mm-hmm. Actually, you know, it's funny when you say criminal profiling, I always thought that was like a more modern invention and didn't realize that it had actually started much earlier. I was thinking 90s, maybe. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. We, You know, because that's when we think about all the forensic tests that you could do. And that's when and DNA and genetic tests started, you know, just being invented. But yeah, he was doing he, he came up with this in the 1950s, which is just mind blowing. And I just was fascinated by the fact that I've lived in New York for 35 years and I've never heard of, he was called the mad bomber. Mm-hmm. Neither had anyone I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That was another thing that struck me. Cause I lived in New York a while back, but yeah, same thing. I know I'd never heard of it. No one had mentioned it. Uh, it wasn't anywhere. So yeah, it was, that was interesting to learn. Cause then I, you know, I was reading your author's notes and I was like, was this real? And yep. <laughs> Yeah, I try, you know, when I'm writing my books, I try to do a lot of research because I was a journalist in the past. And I I kind of use the the facts that I learned as a scaffold and then layer a fictional story on top of that. And then explain really clearly in the author's note what's fact and what's fiction, because historical fiction readers especially really want to know that. Yes, definitely. And they're very particular about details. And (laughs) so, yes, there are rules. (laughs) 
Could you talk a little bit more about your research and and the different aspects of it? Because you've had to you had to research Radio City profiling. Yeah, sure. It was great. First of all, I talked to a number of Rockettes and and heard their stories, which was wonderful in terms of getting those really small details right. Like you know, learning that there was one conductor when they were doing their four shows a, a day that they would do that the last show of the day he'd speed up so he could make his train home, and which was really tough on the dancers. And learning things like they did 600 kicks a day and how tough their schedule was, but also learning about Radio City because these dancers, when they were there, were doing four shows a day and they would do that for three or four weeks straight. And then they'd get a week off. And because of that Radio City, there's seven floors of office space and storage and rehearsal halls. And there's even a dormitory back then for when, you know, they, they stayed late. There was a nurse's station um, they would play wiffle ball and shuffle ball up on, on the roof of the theater. And so it was this whole really community, a, a city itself for the Rockettes and the other performers at Radio City at that time. And so it was fun getting a backstage tour and, and seeing um, all of these interesting little rooms. It's like a maze. You could mm-hmm. absolutely get lost there, which is fun to set a thriller there and have a chase scene through through the entire building. <laughs> oh, Definitely. Now, how is it different now? So is it in terms of the, the Rockettes and so forth? So is it the same? Or, or do they still have the dormitories and different things? No, it's very different because back then it was a movie palace. And so you had four shows a day of movies. And then they had this stage show that went along. If you bought a ticket to the movie, you got a ticket to the stage show. And that included the Rockettes, a choral ensemble. There was a, a Radio City ballet corps. Sometimes they'd have a juggler. And so it was, you know, very entertaining. And the Rockettes dance at that time would be based around the theme of the movie. So say it was a John Wayne movie, they would be in a cowboy outfit. And their their performances changed depending on the movie. Now, today, Radio City is a, a more of a concert venue. So you can see, you know, bands there. There's award shows, um, comedians perform there. And the Rockettes are not, they're only seasonal now. They tend to, this last year, they just did the Christmas show. Mm-hmm. And that runs from the end of November to January 1st. And they do about two to five shows a day. So it's really intense, but it's a much different thing. It's not a full-time gig anymore, unfortunately. Oh yeah, that's too bad. So the dancers have to find other things to do in, in the meantime. Yes. yes. Now, um, I'm assuming you set, there's two timelines in the book. So you set it in 1956 and then I guess it was like 1992. Yes. And I guess you just had to do that based on the age um yeah yeah exactly so in 1992 it's Marion looking back at her life and there's only a few chapters Mm -hmm. of that it's kind of sprinkled very lightly throughout because I knew I had to spend most of the time in 56 telling the story of what happened when she was you know 18 years old um and then those two kind of those timelines kind of pull together at the very end in a way that is hopefully satisfying and and a little surprising Mm -hmm. Now, was the rehearsal club an actual place? Did they have something like that back then? Yeah. So Marion, um, when she becomes a Rockette, she stays at the rehearsal club. And that was a boarding house for women in the performing arts, because it was really hard as a woman to get a room in the 50s. It was mm-hmm. really, you know, people wouldn't hire out their room to you because it was you were considered probably, you know, loose and immoral if you were off doing something independently. And so this this boarding house was started in the 20s. And if you saw the movie Stage Door, it's based on that. That movie is based on on um, the rehearsal club. 
And there were rules. There was no, you know, no boys above the parlor, no alcohol, no smoking. There was a curfew at, at midnight, but you had to be perform kind of pursuing the performing arts in some way, either taking classes or auditioning or performing. And so a number of Rockettes lived there because it was right around the corner on 53rd Street. And some of the people who lived there included Carol Burnett, um, uh, Sandy Duncan, mm-hmm. Blythe Danner, Diane Keaton. And you can just only imagine what it was like living with Carol Carol Burnett at yeah. this crazy, you know, mad boarding house. It would have been amazing. Yeah, yeah I could just imagine. Um, so I know you get this, you probably get asked this question all the time. Every time your book comes out is, is the choosing of your locations. So, and and I know you've said in the past that it has to do with an aha moment. So was it just the email that just clicked for you? And you're like, yes, definitely. I have to do this. No, no. In fact, I was really intimidated because I'm not a dancer and writing about dance seemed pretty impossible, um, and very daunting. And so what I did, what I normally do is I just kind of dive into the research and I'd say, you know, like you said, I'm looking for the aha moment. I'm looking for the surprise. And with this one, it was learning what that, what the dancer's life was like back then and how different it is from being a rocket today, you know, just how intense it was and the sisterhood it created and the way the former rockets I talked to just spoke with, with such joy in their voices about their time. You know, I, I would say, did any, you know, was there any backstabbing or anything like that? And they're like, nope, it was a real community and a real sisterhood. And that's when I thought, I want to try and capture this on the page. You know, let's let's see if we can pull this off. Mm-hmm. Was it, how long did they stay as a rockhead? Because I know there was an age requirement and then did they just age out? Um, you know, there, there wasn't an age requirement. I don't think, definitely later on, there was not. Okay. There were dancers in their thirties dancing. But what happened was usually they they got married or went off and had kids. Mm-hmm. And also it was just so intense. I don't think it's something you could do for 10 years straight mm-hmm. at that time. You would, you know, it, it took such a toll on your body to be able to dance so precisely, hit your mark, hit, do it every time, and then do it four times a day for, for, for an entire month. You know, it takes a lot out of you. Mm-hmm. So could you talk a little bit more about your uh, writing process? So you've got your aha moment. You start doing your research. I guess it's the other way around. You start doing your research <laughs> and find yeah. it. So, yeah, yeah. So I, I do a research for about three or four months and that's interviewing people and really getting out and, you know, seeing the building and being able to understand what it's like spatially and, and just digging around for, you know, all the little hidden gems that will make the story, will anchor the story in whatever decade I want it to be in. And then I do a pretty quick first draft. I write straight through um, about three or four months it takes to do that first draft. And then I go back and I edit it about 10 times. And it goes to my agent and to my my editor and then to the copywriter and the proofreader. So it really goes through so many stages of work. And and then it gets out in the world, which is the most exciting time. Yes, yes, definitely. Well, do you have a favorite? Now you've talked about a lot of, or you've written about a lot of different places throughout uh, the the library, uh, Grand Central Station. Do you have a particular place that you love the best? Oh, you know, there, there. It's always whatever one I'm working on at the moment is definitely the the favorite child. But I, I loved, um, you know, writing about the Rockettes was fantastic. I loved writing about the Frick, which was the Magnolia Palace, which was my 
just the, the one before this one, mm-hmm. um, just because it was fun to write about a Gilded Age family that was utterly dysfunctional. That was that was a fun dive to go into. Yeah, I really enjoyed the lines of Fifth Avenue and just as a librarian and learning all of the information about the uh, the New York Public Library, the fact that they had an apartment was is still mind boggling to me. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, when I remember when I saw that, I found it in a New York Times article about the retirement of the superintendent. And it mentioned that he'd lived in this seven room apartment deep inside the library for 30 years. And his daughter was born in the library. You know, the kids would raise pigeons on the roof. I just thought that was remarkable. And I knew at that point that that book was, you know, that that, that was gonna be a fun read. And, and the librarians, the support of the librarians for that book has been so much fun, A, in the research and also in the response. Yes, I remember, uh, I think you said something like they told you how to hide a body, like showed you what best places there was. <laughs> I, yes, at one point there was a dead body and I and I reached out to one of the librarians at the New York Public Library and I said, where would you hide it? And she wrote back, you know, oh, absolutely down in the basement over here. And, you know, no, no problem. That's just a day in the life of a librarian. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that was a lot of fun to read and just learning all about the library. Yeah. Now, I guess I can ask, what's, do you have a new book started? Yeah, so I'm working on a book that's set at the Met Museum and it's um, in the 1930s and the 1970s. And it's from the point of view of an assistant curator in the Egyptian wing, as well as an assistant to the Met Gala, which is the big party of the year mm-hmm. that every year. And so it's a, a mix of glamour and mummies. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah, I hadn't even connected the two. Uh, I, forget, I always forget. Like, I always think of the Med Gala as something separate. <laughs> right. Yeah. And in fact, it's part of the costume collection, which is, a you know, the costume um, department, which is amazing there at the Met. And, you know, with the the, the layers of, of different clothes over the decades and the different designers. And that's, you know, just as important in the Met as the, um, you know, Egyptian collection or the the French Impressionists. So it's kind of a fun thing to play with. There's a lot to play with. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I bet. Now, would you ever consider changing cities or are you going to continue with New York? So I don't know, like St. Louis and the arts. Or... <laughs> <laughs> you know, whenever I travel and do a book talk, there's always some building that someone comes up to me and says, oh, you have to look into this. And every city has some remarkable building with a great story to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I would definitely expand. I think, you know, for, for me, I'm based in New York. Right. So research is easy that I can just run out and go, you know, take a look and figure out, okay, how does that work? Or going into Grand Central and finding all the hidden nooks was fun. But um, yeah, I, you know, I'd love to do London mm-hmm. where, where houses and, and buildings are really old. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that yep. could be fun to play with. Yeah, definitely. Lots of little ghost stories in there too. <laughs> Exactly. And that's what's fun is finding these layers of kind of the the hidden stories in each generation in each building. Mm -hmm. So now have you, I know you say you get um, emails from readers. Um, Is there uh, places that you're just like, oh, maybe I will explore or anything unusual you've gotten recently? Oh, you know, um, you know, I try and not think ahead. Mm -hmm. So it's not like I have a running list of buildings in my head. Um, so yeah, at the moment, there's nothing really floating because I'm kind of balancing the publicity for the spectacular with the research for the Met book, but we'll see what comes down the pike. I mean, I've been definitely influenced by readers in the past. In fact, it was doing book talks around the country and having so many readers say to me, oh, the New York Public Library mm-hmm. made me look at that, 
So, you know, I owe it all, I owe it all to them. Very nice. So last question is, uh, what are you reading and, uh, or what do you recommend we read? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, there's a book out called hedge by Jane Delury, mm -hmm. and that's wonderful. It's about a woman who's a historian of gardens uh, and kind of family drama. It's just beautifully written, wonderful tension. And I, I really, really enjoyed that. And then, um, there's a memoir out called A Heart That Works by Rob Delaney, the comedian. And he's a hilarious comedian. If you saw the movie Catastrophe, um, that was he, or the, the series Catastrophe. He's great. But he also um, lost a son uh, at a very young age. And he wrote a memoir about it. And it's powerful and funny um, mm -hmm. and just heartbreaking. And um, I'm just so amazed at the way he put into words things that are very hard to express. Oh, very nice. Well, thank you so much for your time. And listeners, The Spectacular is going to be available right here at the Kirkwood Public Library and wherever thrilling books are sold. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you're here about the podcast challenge for summer reading, the code word is community. One more time. The code word is community. Thank you for listening. And thanks to Fiona Davis for doing the interview on her latest, The Spectacular. Stay tuned next week when we return with author Tara Shelton-Harris talking about her book, One Summer in Savannah. Until next week.